The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning. This is the Novice Forum Radio Hour on WWDB Talk 860 in Philadelphia. I'm Gary Gamble, general editor of the Middle East Forum and co-host of the show. Our lead host, Greg Roman, is uh, out today. He says he'll be with us in spirit, but I don't feel his presence, so I guess we're on our own. Uh, we have three guests today. Uh, the first is uh, Clifford Smith, who's the Washington Project Director for the Middle East Forum, and he's going to be uh, discussing an article he just wrote about Al Jazeera, which is uh, Qatar's quasi-state-owned media conglomerate, uh, which has apparently avoided registering as a foreign agent, which is typical of most state-run media outlets. Uh, you may have seen Qatar's English language channel uh, on uh, cable, if, if you uh, have that in your cable package. Uh, so he's going to discuss that, as is Benjamin Baird, who is uh, the head of uh, Islamism and Politics Project at Islamist Watch, which, which is an affiliate of the Middle East Forum. And finally, we're going to have Ben Fishman, who's a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and he'll be here to discuss Libya and an upcoming peace conference, uh, prospects for bringing that, that brutal war to a close. Uh, but first, let's, let's uh, go over some recent uh, news developments. The new leader of Islamic State, or ISIS as it's commonly known, has been confirmed as Amir Muhammad Abdurrahman Amali al-Salbi, according to officials from two intelligence services. You may recall that when ISIS leader Abu Bakr Baghdadi was killed back in November... ISIS released the name of his successor. Uh, I don't have the name in front of me, but apparently they made it up, <laughs> uh, in, perhaps in order, understandably perhaps, to, to avoid uh, bringing death and mayhem onto his successor. Uh, but apparently the, uh, Salbi was confirmed within hours of al-Baghdadi's death. Um, so we'll see how that fares. An Iranian lawmaker has placed a $3 million bounty on President Trump's head. Ahmad Hamzi made the declaration yesterday during a speech in parliament in Tehran, although it's it's unclear whether his announcement has any backing from the country's uh, leadership. Not sure how they arrived at a figure of $3 million since they surely don't anticipate paying it out anytime soon. The Washington, uh, the Washington Post reported yesterday that the United Nations is preparing to publicize the results of a forensic investigation concluding that Amazon founder and Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos, uh, that his phone was uh, hacked by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And, and by that, they don't mean the government of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed uh, bin Salman. Apparently, during a, a WhatsApp text exchange between Bezos and Ben Salman back in February, 
I believe. Or no, I'm sorry, back in May 2018, apparently the Crown Prince uh, sent some sort of <laughs> some some sort of file during the text messaging that infected uh, Jeff Bezos's phone and extracted all sorts of information, which later apparently became the basis for a National Enquirer story about an affair Bezos was having. Uh, it's speculated that the purpose of this, um, which to some degree reflects, if true, of course, reflects Saudi misunderstanding of how the, how the American media works, apparently the purpose was to pressure Bezos into dialing back the Washington Post's coverage uh, of Saudi Arabia. You, you may recall uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi dissident who was uh, killed, I guess, 15 months ago, was a, an op-ed contributor for the Washington Post. C- CNN, uh, in reporting the story, concluded, quote, the revelation casts a new shadow over the future king, uh, but I, I wouldn't take that to the bank. I think uh, he's managed to survive quite a lot of bad press and I don't I don't see that this this adds a lot to it. I, I I posted this story on social media the other day and one of my colleagues at the Middle East Forum replied back good. <laughs> um not a fan of the Washington Post. Okay, so, uh several US service members were injured during Iran's missile attack on Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq. This was about a week and a half ago. Despite the Pentagon initially uh, saying that there were no casualties. Apparently, these are mostly concussion-related injuries that surfaced in the days after the attack. They weren't immediately apparent when the attack happened. I believe there are 11 who are being treated. Six Iraqis and two police officers were killed, and scores were wounded in Baghdad and other cities in, on Monday in clashes with security forces. This... Uh, happened as anti-government unrest in Iraq resumed after a lull for several weeks after the killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. In Lebanon, where, where uh, protests against the Iranian-backed government have also resumed, medics claimed that more than 530 protesters and members of the security forces were wounded over the weekend. Uh, things are definitely heating up there. On Sunday, Jordan's parliament approved a draft law banning the import of Israeli natural gas. It was passed unanimously by all 130 lawmakers. Uh, But it's expected that legal obstacles and, you know, the the fact that parliament doesn't really mean anything in Jordan will prevent uh, this resolution from coming into force. Um, Just, uh, I guess, about two, three weeks ago, uh, Israeli started ex- Israel started exporting natural gas from its Leviathan gas field in the Mediterranean. Uh, the Israeli defense force forces on Sunday began installing a series of underground sensors along its northern border with Lebanon, designed to detect the construction of any new subterranean tunnels uh, built by Hezbollah. Uh, you may recall about a year ago the IDF destroyed six of these tunnels. So now apparently, uh, instead of relying on painstaking intelligence work to uncover them after they're built, Israel will be notified pretty instantaneously uh, once uh, you know loud machinery is, is used to start building them again. 
The leader of uh, Matteo Salvini, the leader of Italy's League Party and the front runner to become its next prime minister, vowed in an interview that if he becomes prime minister, he will recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Uh, he also said ED- the European Union should ban the BDS movement, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, uh, that, which pushes for boycotts against Israel. On Monday, Honduras formally designated Hezbollah a terrorist organization, and Guatemala's new president, Alejandro Giamate, uh, signaled that his government would do the same. This is, these are two small countries, but it, it, it's a significant uh, development because Hezbollah and Iranian proxies more generally have a large presence in Latin America owing to uh, the presence of, of uh, mostly Lebanese Shiite uh, diaspora there. And Hezbollah uses it for narcotics trafficking and, and uh, counterfeiting and all sorts of other things. Meanwhile, Britain expanded the scope of its asset freezing measures against Hezbollah to cover the entire organization as opposed to just its quote-unquote military wing. Uh, Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Kasalyu uh, denied allegations of granting Turkish citizenship or offering compensation to uh, Syrian militia fighters that have apparently been sent to Libya to join the fighting there. He said the statements are, quote, completely false, um, indicating apparently that they're just going there out of the goodness or badness, as it may be, of their heart. And U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo expressed outrage to Egypt's president on Sunday at the death of an American citizen who insisted he had been wrongfully held in an Egyptian prison for the past six years, uh, Mustafa Qasim, 54, had been on a protracted hunger strike for weeks uh, in hopes of gaining the attention of President Trump to win his release. He frankly didn't gain much attention from the hunger strike, but his death is definitely causing a stir inside the Beltway. Okay, we're going to take a break. We'll be back shortly with Clifford Smith. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century, communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of nonviolent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand. 
for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Good morning. Welcome back to the Release Forum Radio Hour on WWDB Talk 860 in Philadelphia. Our first guest is Clifford Smith. He's the Washington Project uh, Director here at the Middle East Forum. And he's here to discuss Al Jazeera, the uh, Qatari-owned uh, media conglomerate uh, that has, has sort of taken uh, the world media environment by storm. Uh, Cliff, are you there? I am. How are you doing, Gary? Very good. So the article you wrote recently uh, – points out something that I think a lot of us didn't know that Al Jazeera despite being you know details of ownership aside a, a an arm of the Qatari government uh, is not registered mm-hmm. as a foreign agent which as I understand it um, most other state owned media organizations uh, whether from China or Russia or, or, or other places are registered and be- yeah. before we get into all that uh, can you tell us what does it mean to be registered as a foreign agent if you're a news agency? Well, it gets kind of messy. Um, not all – merely being foreign-owned doesn't necessarily um, require you. Even being owned, funded by a sovereign, it's when you are both funded and controlled by a sovereign. So, in other words, the BBC doesn't have to register because while it's publicly funded, there's no, nobody really thinks that they're you know controlled by – the government of, of the UK. Um, and um, so it's not, it does get a little bit messy there. Um, and, but it basically, what are, registering with under FARA or even registering with the FCC, which is kind of a secondary regulation that was passed by Congress recently to catch anybody that should be registered by FARA, but whoever technicality thought they could get away with not doing it. I mean, it doesn't actually entail a whole lot. It's simply a matter of um, registering that you are owned by a sovereign and run by a sovereign, um, and that you know, basically it gets people on notice of who you really are. Right. And that has been exactly what Al Jazeera has been extremely hesitant to do. Um, well, frankly, that's a bit of an understatement. I mean, they have steadfastly refused to do in spite of mountains of evidence that they should do just that. And so far, uh, the U.S. government has let them get away with it, even though Congressional pressure on this has been increasing steadily for quite some time, right. um, partly because of it in and of itself, but partially because of the concern for foreign interference after all the you know the Russian interference and such during the 2016 election. It's become a much more bipartisan concern. Right. Of course, in this country, you know, for, for anyone who's seen Al Jazeera English, um, it, it, its production value is is quite impressive. Most of the uh, I think all of the broadcasters um, and most of the journalists are Western. They're, they're you know people hired uh, who have been working for other news agencies. Um, yes. And, and, and the the editorial line, as near as I can tell, you, you from watching it, you would never think it's a Qatari outlet, other unless you notice the Arabic calligraphy logo in the corner of the screen. It, it really strikes me as not that different from. Well, I started to say MSNBC. I think it's. <laughs> ironically more, think, more news oriented than msnbc but basically <laughs> you know the same sort of I, left of center 
Yeah, it, it certainly is clearly intentionally uh, appealing to the progressive left. Right. Um, it is clearly um, creating a niche there um, and trying to sort of win supporters there. And, and it's true that when it's covering, you know, I don't know, the, the Trump impeachment or, you know, racial inequality or other issues that might be of great interest to the left, it takes a fairly traditional leftist turn. Right. Um, the one area where that is different is where there's anything that would directly impact you know, the interests of Qatar and the Gulf. So the, the coverage of Gulf politics, um, when it does cover them, is decidedly, pretty clearly, taking the line of the Qatar regime, which of course should come as no great surprise, given who they are. Right. Um, so... You, you, so I, I guess what, what, what's interesting is that you know Qatar, and I know you, you've written about this, so maybe you can elaborate. But but Qatar, uh, it, it used to be sort of you know a, a quirky Gulf Emirate that was was basically pro-Western, but you know ho- hosted some Muslim Brotherhood ideologues who were in exile from this that or the other place, and it was commonly viewed as you know, a country that w- w- was kind of playing both sides a bit, um, but people viewed it as understandable. You know, it, it's, you know, like Kuwait or, or, you know, a lot of other Gulf countries, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, very small in population, very weak, and it's, you know, just considered a traditional um, sort of Arab defense mechanism when you're weak. Um, but... A lot has changed recently. Uh, Turkey has opened a, a military base in Qatar, as I understand it. Um, Qatar has had uh, very bad relations with the other Gulf states, um, to the point where Saudi Arabia and several of the other ones have cut relations with it. Um, this also coming at a time when they've banned the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization, and so yeah. you know, for at one point when when the uh, dispute between Qatar and Saudi Arabia first erupted, there, was, there were even fears of war. Um, yeah. And, and as you said, the, you know, there's considerable congressional pressure, not only on Al Jazeera, um, but on Qatar as well, on things regarding ar- you know, arms sales and, and what have you. Uh, but the, the Trump administration um, has not been very receptive to this pressure. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, the Trump, like many things in the Trump policy in the Middle East, there's been a fair amount of inconsistency. Um, I, I think, I think to the wider issue, you're correct that you know Qatar was seen as being a more traditionally Arab power that tried to play both sides until recently. I, I think um, it's hard to it's hard to tease this out exactly, but Qatar has changed and gotten worse and gotten more in an Islamist, um, you know, pro-Muslim Brotherhood direction, and so on and so forth. Um, But I think part of the thing is that simply the rest of the Arab states, certainly in the Gulf states, have went the other direction. I mean, clearly, for whatever their problems, and believe me, I heard heard what you talked about uh, Prince Ben Salman later in his, uh, you know, rather reckless actions on a number of fronts, you know, Saudi really is going the other direction when it comes to a lot of their traditional, their traditional friends and our traditional enemies in terms of the Muslim Brotherhood, various terrorist organizations funding 
Wahhabism, things of that nature, they really have, at least seemingly for the time being, taken a significant turn, as many of the other Arab states. And there's a number of reasons for that. Some of those is, you know, cultural. Some of those is political. Um, some of it is geopolitical. And a lot of it comes from that. A lot of the other Gulf states and other Arab states um, rightly see um, the Iranian theocracy, the Shia theocracy, as a threat to their existence. Um, Qatar has, on the other hand, tried to play both sides on that issue when that is really seen as a big problem um, for the rest of the Gulf states, and especially as they've gotten closer to Iran, it's alienated the Gulf states even more. So I think that's sort of how that has played out. I mean, there's a lot more complexities to this. It's a, nothing is a straight line in this region of the world. Um, but right. I think that, in the grandest <laughs> sense, is, is what's been going on. And I think as they have alienated their um, Arab allies, their traditional Arab neighbors, I should say, more, they have increasingly sought the U.S. to intermediate and sort of win their battles for them. Right. And potentially, since they have since they have an air force, they have a military base in Qatar. Um, they, the U.S. does that is that gives them leverage. A lot of people right. don't want to mess with them because of it. And you sort of see some of the other states that are going the opposite direction of being, you know, anti-Muslim Brotherhood, anti-radical, anti-terrorist, at least to a significant degree. The countries that are going the opposite direction, the more pro-Muslim Brotherhood more friendly to theocracy, so on and so forth. In other words, Turkey, Iran, and such, it's getting closer. So it's sort of a natural division. The problem with uh, Qatar, though, is, as you point out, it's militarily weak and geographically isolated in a way that Turkey and Iran are not. And so um, they are seeking to use their vast amounts of money to sort of cover over their other weaknesses. Right. You know, the, the irony, um, you know, when you consider that you know, as you mentioned before, Al Jazeera, or at least Al Jazeera English, uh, projects what can best be described as a, a progressive left point of view. And when you consider that Qatar's foreign policy is, is by Arab standards, very pro-Iranian, internally, Qatar is governed by the same Wahhabi, ultra-conservative Sunni Islamism that Saudi Arabia is, in fact, more so because, as you said, MBS in Saudi Arabia has dialed that back a lot. You know, he's, he's put dozens of, of prominent Wahhabi clerics in jail, and the ones who aren't in jail mm -hmm. are, are certainly not speaking out the way they used to. And so, you know, that yeah. that, that adds an additional level of, of what to outsiders must, you know, seem confusion because you know Wahhabism is not pro Shia by any. You know, Iran is, is is Shiite Muslim. It's not pro Shia by any stretch of the imagination, and unlike other no. forms of Islamism, it's not generally pro progressive left either. And so, you know, no. it, it seems like these contradictions at some point would come crashing down <laughs> for Qatar, but they, they don't really. Well, I mean, they haven't. It depends on how you look at it, I suppose. I mean, crashing down, no, it's not come crashing down. It certainly has caused them no end of consternation. I mean. Right. The Gulf Rift, which has resulted in their isolation from all of their, you know, Arab neighbors, certainly has taken its toll. It has caused them to spend, you know, ungodly amounts of money on things like Al Jazeera, like other foreign influence. I mean, um, my colleague Sam Westrop um, and um, uh, Martha um, Lee wrote another op-ed, I believe it was six or nine months ago, 
about how Qatar, while Al Jazeera is going hardcore for the progressive faction, um, Qatar has also made a huge play for conservatives right, by right. Um, getting people like Mort Klein of ZOA and Mike <laughs> Huckabee to sort yeah. of say nice things about and, them and to visit at various Qatar times. In some cases. Yeah, and to visit Qatar. And beyond that, I, they actually have taken out huge sections in the Washington Times, which is one of Washington, D.C.'s more right-leading papers um, that have, quote-unquote, sponsored op-eds. It doesn't say who. I mean, technically, right, nobody right. knows who sponsored them. But they have these huge sponsored op-eds that just happen to be saying lots of nice things about Qatar. Um, if you want to believe that's a pure coincidence and maybe it's just some random U.S. businessman funding those, you can. Um, I have a little bit more cynical view of it. Right. And there's also, there's also, I think, over at Campus Watch, another project of the Middle East Forum, they've tracked some uh, Qatari money going into universities and, and mm -hmm. university chairs, Middle East Studies Centers, and what have you. Huge, huge amounts. Huge, huge amounts. amounts. Matter of fact, at least according to publicly available information, and I, and I stress that because it's hard to know, um, a recent Department of Education inquiry basically said that a whole lot of foreign money is not being reported appropriately, so we don't know for sure. But based on publicly available money that we know that has been disclosed, Qatar has been the number one donor to U.S. universities for quite a number of years. Right. And it's not particularly close. Um, it's China, which has actually been the focus of Congress for, because they've been a little bit more outward and out, uh, outspoken about it, is actually number three, according to publicly available information. Qatar right. is number one. Right. Saudi is probably number two. I, I believe it is. Yes, that's right. correct. But even then, you know, Saudi Saudi is a country of you know twenty something odd million people. Qatar, I think, in terms of actual citizens, Qatar has a couple hundred thousand, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I believe that's correct. And, and what's then an expatriate workforce of you know God knows how many. Yes, massive amounts of what amounts to barely above slave labor, but they but their average actual citizen. Um, I can't remember the exact number, make something like $400,000 a year. It's $100,000 a year, their average citizen. Right. So what they have is money. What they don't have is much of anything else. Um, you know, they have natural gas and oil, and that's how they you know, fund everything else, including Al Jazeera. You know, the, the, so the, it's a messy situation. There's, there's a, a body of political science work on what's called the rentier state. Uh, and and the, the idea is that if you're, if the government has enormous natural resources, to the point where it basically distributes money and services to the citizens rather than taxing them, that there's absolutely no demands for democratic accountability of any kind. It's sort of the opposite of our history, which is all about no taxation without representation. And in, in the Arab Gulf, it's no representation without taxation. If you don't tax the citizens, they don't demand accountability, they don't demand to be represented. And so you can have a government that has a, a trifecta of being allied with the progressive left, which is basically not consistent with what its citizens believe, being pro-Iranian, which is not really consistent with what its citizens believe, and uh, palling around, to, <laughs> to borrow Sarah Palin, Palin's <laughs> phrase, palling around with Zionists, which is certainly not what its citizens uh Believe. So, you know, you, you have a government with a, enormous resources that has almost a negligible amount of citizens who are very content and make, you know, have, live very well and it can do whatever it wants. You know, that, that, that's how Libya got Gaddafi, who, was, who wrote a book essentially refuting the Quran, and people for many years were like, okay, you know, whatever. 
you know. Yeah, it's a it's a very strange situation, um, and as things in the Gulf often are, it's, it's there's not clear lines to explain. You have to sort of untangle the web to see how this is really going. Um, but at the end of the day, you can simply see that the, the the bottom line is this: the Qatar regime wants business to go on as usual with no changes, um, and the rest of um, the Gulf does not want that. Right. Um, their Arab neighbors do not want that. And there have been, my, my understanding and some talks with some senior State Department people is that Qatar has started to moderate some of this. Um, I, I'm not in the know about the details, so I can't really speak to it directly, but um, I, I do think that you know, the, the pressure put on them has perhaps you know, modified their behavior somewhat, but at the end of the day, they are continuing to do what they want to do and are continuing to use their money and in foreign influence, um, of which Al Jazeera is a key example, to sort of get away with as much as they possibly can and keep the status quo as much as they can, while all of their neighbors um, who you know feel justifiably threatened by Iran um, and other radicals in the region are going in the opposite direction and wanting to change the status quo that's existed for decades. Right. At least that's what all the available information tells us until it tells us something else, which in the Gulf is always a possibility. Yeah. All right, Cliff, we're out of time. Uh, thanks for appearing. This is very informative. We'll be back after a break with Ben Fishman. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that, overall, you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Good morning. Welcome back to the Middle East Forum Radio Hour. This is uh, your co-host, Gary C. Gamble. Uh, our next guest is Ben Fishman, who's a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Uh, he served from 2009 to 2013 on the National Security Council, where he held several posts, including executive assistant to Ambassador Dennis Ross, uh, where he coordinated U.S. support for Libya's revolution uh, back in... 2011, um, and later was director for North Africa and Jordan. Uh, ben, you there? I'm here. So, Good morning. I, I, you've written recently about the situation in Libya, and I, I have to confess, I haven't kept up 
uh, with the most recent breaking news on Libya. But as I understand it, there's a a peace process of sorts or, or negotiations for a ceasefire. Is that right? Uh, hopefully. <laughs> Both sides have actually not met together right. um, since uh, um, early February. Um, and then uh, Khalifa Heftar, um, I don't know, I, I caught the last bit of their last guest, but didn't hear the, the full interview. Um, so I hope I'm not repeating, but Khalifa Heftar, who is head of the uh, so-called Libyan National Army, uh, because it's not a real uh, national army, uh, more like a um, proto-militia uh, state with um, support from uh, the Emirates and, and uh, Egypt and others, uh, walked away from the last negotiations and, in fact, um, launched an invasion of Tripoli uh, in the west um, uh, in the, the very day that UN Security Count, uh, UN Secretary General uh, Guterres was in Tripoli, uh, hoping to forge a no, uh, new national dialogue between right. uh, all parties. Now, it, it, as, as I understand it, um, Li- Libya is divided between two sides. One is the uh, GNA Government of National Accord. Uh, that's recognized by the Security Council dating back to a agreement in 2015, I think it was. Um, yes. Backed by uh, Turkey. And in fact, recently Turkey has, has apparently sent uh, Turkish-backed Syrian militia forces into Libya to help. And on the other side, as you, as you mentioned, uh, Haftar's forces, which are backed by uh, the UAE and, I guess, Russia to some extent, um, a, a few weeks ago, we had, we had a guest, uh, Aya Berwela, who uh, criticized the previous round of UN slash EU involvement in Libya, which, and the, the approach then in, in 2014, 2015, was that you have two warring sides, and the best way to move forward is get them, is sort of confidence building, ceasefire, get them to both agree on, on a elections to, to a parliament and all of that. And in her view, and in, in the view of a lot of other people, that was a failure. In the current situation, I'm, I'm sort of going to play the devil's advocate here. If you have one side, and this is Haftar's forces, controlling nine-tenths of the country and another side controlling one-tenth, all else being equal is is the quickest way to bring it into the war, not supporting the stronger side to finish its conquest of the country. Uh, well, two things about that. Uh, maybe three. Um, Heptar does not control the majority of the population. Uh, the majority of the population is in Tripoli and uh, the West. The right, third, right. Okay, so the map's city. a little misleading, of course. Yeah. Right. The thir- third city is um, Misrata. And he doesn't fully control um, even his own territory because it's uh, it's uh, a little misleading. Um, the majority of the minority of the population is in the east. Um, second, uh, say Haftar uh, came in and uh, dominated um, by force uh, um, the western part of Libya. Um, the fighters in Libya or in uh, 
Tripoli area are not motivated by uh, their their uh, have in the past uh, fought each other. Um, they have uh, ideological uh, disagreements. They have turf wars, but they're extremely motivated against Heftar because they see him as a neo Qaddafi like figure, and they uh, didn't launch the 2000. 11 revolution for nothing and to uh, to see um, uh, just another dictator. Um, right. He uh, served under Gaddafi for a while, didn't he? Uh, he served under Gaddafi um, in the 70s and early 80s and then defected and uh, was in the opposition and ultimately came to the U.S. because uh, he was uh, uh, launched a failed coup. Right. He's sort of like Karzai, right? Didn't he own a restaurant or something at some point? Uh, <laughs> <He was>. I, <laughs> his, his background in Virginia was extremely low-key. Right. Uh, so, and, and the, the, the third element is not only would he not be accepted um, by uh, the majority of the West, even if he was militarily superior, um, that would launch even greater instability because um, uh, the most likely outcome is he wouldn't be able to, um, even with his uh, forces um, and uh, additional alliances, um, he wouldn't be able to um, stop an insurgency that uh, would create even more instability, in my judgment. Right. So you, you, I noticed you were quoted in an article a few days ago arguing, in essence, that you know this, this is a difficult situation, but the, the sort of point of least resistance, or, or maybe you didn't use this term, but sort of the low-hanging fruit of, of what you can do to sort of bring, bring about a break to the stalemate is simply get the UAE to stop supporting Haftar. I think you said until Abu Dhabi pulls back its drones, operators, and other crucial military support, the prospects for Libya's stability will remain dim. Yes. So um, there, the UAE provides uh, basically or enables Haftar to um, have air superiority in this in this war, right. um, meaning they have uh, drones, um, Chinese-made uh, drones, and operators. That are not Libyan forces, um, and uh, until that stops, uh, there won't be a ceasefire. Now, you mentioned earlier about Turkey's involvement. Recently, uh, they signed a, um, an agreement with the GNA in um, November. Uh, Erdogan got parliamentary approval uh, to send forces, Turkish forces to help the GNA. Um, it's on a limited basis so far. Um, I believe uh, that uh, in a genuine ceasefire negotiation, he could pause that deployment. Um, there's also, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, um, several hundred uh, Syrian mercenaries that Turkey has sponsored to fight with uh, um, along with the JNA forces. That's a disturbing uh, development. So it's it's definitely right. not just the Emiratis that need to pause, but because they're the most, um, uh, they have pro provided the most serious equipment and arms. Um, and we have the most influence over them, arguably. Uh, with um, uh, over Heftar. 
What, what I mean is that of the three uh, uh, major external actors, Turkey, Russia, and, and uh, the UAE, we have more influence over the UAE. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. And that there are um, Russian mercenaries too, right? Yes. Uh, and interestingly, last week, Putin and uh, – in early January, Putin and Erdogan um, agreed – uh, together, that there should be a ceasefire in um, uh, in Libya. Um, that truce has mostly held, but not uh, not fully. Uh, then Putin convened um, Siraj, the head of the GNA, and um, uh, and uh, Heftar to Moscow. Uh, Siraj signed a ceasefire agreement. Haraj, um, Heftar walked away from it. Um, so it just it, it indicates Heftar's real stubbornness um, to make any kind of compromise, even saying no to someone as influential as uh, Putin. Right. Well, of course, when outsiders are willing to bankroll and arm you, uh, that, that's that's not conducive to compromise. I mean, it, it, is it your view that his obstinance is a product of resource availability? Um, or is he, you know, a, a crazy megalomaniac who will settle for nothing less than total control of, of Libya? Um, uh, I would say uh, not in the, those terms, but he's demonstrated that he's basically said no to anything. Um, even in the last efforts that um, the Emiratis, uh, interestingly enough, um, brought the two parties together, this is the last meeting between Siraj and um, Heftar, um, the, the concept always has been uh, Heftar wants uh, independence from civilian government. He wants to be ahead of the army, armed forces. Um, at least uh, that's the um, that's what he says uh, without civilian uh, oversight. Now uh, that was a deal on the table uh, back in February. It's been uh, on the table back in since the Obama years, my colleagues who uh, worked with, uh, negotiated with him um, back then say the same thing. He, he never said or indicated any degree of compromise. Now, the GNA, as I mentioned before, they have many flaws as well, but at least they've um, signed on to uh, Putin's proposal, um, and they're, they're willing to um, come to the table um, after... Uh, um, not last week, there uh, on Sunday actually, um, the world leaders uh, convened in Berlin um, to, to give this um, supposed peace process and uh, ceasefire and uh, um, a, a new uh, um, arms control or um, uh, arms embargo enforcement um, a, a strategic boost, and we can um, talk about that and and the the positives and negatives that um, were achieved in uh, Berlin. Right. So w what should the U.S. role be? Let, 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 let's imagine an alternate reality where the current administration listened to former Obama administration officials. <laughs> <laughs> if that was the case, what would you? What would your memo uh, right. to the National Security Council say? So, so I've been advocating since um, the Trump administration took over that Libya needs to be a higher priority for this administration. Um, President Trump 
in um, early 2017 um, indicated uh, that Libya was not on his agenda. He said with the Italian prime minister, we have Americans have no interest in Libya. And then he paused and said, except for ISIS. And then, and if you recall back then, um, in the uh, second half of 2016, ISIS had actually um, established a foothold in Libya in a town called Sirte, right. uh, where Gaddafi was from, and um, we provided six months of air support to the local um, uh, militias there uh, to get rid of ISIS, and that um, that actually occurred. So um, he was Trump was cognizant of the ISIS uh, issue, um, but. Uh, less so on uh, um, he thought it was a European problem. Um, that remained the case uh, until um, the Civil War broke out earlier in uh, in April this year. Um, he may actually made a phone call to Heftar, um, which uh, many suspect that um, the present uh, um, Sisi of Egypt and um, the UAE were behind. Um, and Heftar read that as, as uh, um, U.S. support. Um, and the U.S. has been ambiguous basically uh, throughout the summer when there were reports uh, in, back in September that Russia was actually playing a greater role um, and sending these mercenaries to the front lines. Uh, it caught Washington's attention. Um, and uh, they began a process of um, re-engaging on Libya. Um, the main thing that we can do, as I noted before, is pressure all the, war, the supporting actors um, to cease their activities, including the UAE, including Turkey, um, and uh, give the, 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 um, the ceasefire a chance. And then um, the second part is uh, um, in the coming days, uh, the UN, uh, and that was part of the Berlin process as well, um, it has proposed a Libyan-Libyan dialogue, a renewed uh, national dialogue uh, on political issues, on uh, security military issues, and uh, economic issues. And we need to um, back that process as well right is it is there in in libya is is would you say that there's a, a silent uh majority in which there's consensus say you know that we, we we don't want islamist rule we don't want a return to military dictatorship we want something in the middle whether it's democracy like it, 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 is there a consensus about what the future of libya should be or, as some have suggested, is 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 there a deep divide, you know, between West and East, or between uh, religious and secular, that that is going to be difficult uh, to bridge? In other words, right. if you just get people to put down their arms, do you think this is workable, or is there going to be a, a much deeper sort of national reconciliation needed? So, um, elements of both uh, options are are true. Um, I, having seen some private polling, um, I think there's a vast uh, silent majority, as you phrased it, um, that is fed up with war and wants to pr uh, 
see Libya's political transition uh, go through um, and uh, um, is uh, very opposed to there's a, a sort of a contradiction. They're um, opposed to dictatorship, but they're not they're, they want stability. Um, and for those who see Haftar as a, as a means for stability, they're willing to give him a chance. And as I mentioned earlier, um, for those who um, don't want uh, another dictator, that's kind of the motivation for um, this diff di these disparate, disparate groups in the, uh, in the West to keep fighting against him. Um, a second element to, th to this um, is uh, um, there is um, uh, a, a general fear about, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a significant element to this, the, the status quo authorities uh, on both sides, um, meaning Heftar and his uh, their, his family and his um, his, his uh, supporters um, and the GNA leadership um, benefit from this current stalemate, um, and uh, meaning they're they're in power. They're not a it's not in a good situation, um, but they're uh, leading in a, this UN backed transition plan. They have to step away at some point, and the goal is new elections, um, and that's an element of why both sides are um, uh, hesitant to make these compromises. Um, it is a challenging negotiation um, because you have to uh, navigate these parties that no one wants to go first. Um, and uh, that's the job of the UN, the, sec um, the special representative of the uh, um, Secretary General, Hassan uh, Salome, has been at it this for uh, a year and a half or so, uh, maybe two years. Uh, he's exhausted. Um, it's a it's a real it's a really really tough challenge to work with these parties. Um, as I mentioned before. Heftar is, stu is, is stubborn, um, but on the GNA side, they have to make compromises too, and that goes against their interests. Right. And they're certainly going to not want to go first if they know that Heftar is not going to abide by his agreements. Okay, I know this is a loaded question, but I'd like to conclude with, uh, with it. Um, what mistakes, if any, were made in 2011 by the Obama administration, by the international community, uh, w w w w was there an alternate path uh, to transitioning from Gaddafi in Libya? Yeah, I mean that this uh, is a subject of uh, articles, books, even. Um, so I'll try to uh, be as brief as I can. <laughs> I'm still a adamant supporter that the um, uh, support the NATO intervention was the right thing to do at the right time with the information that we had available. Gaddafi wasn't going to, um, you know, magically pull it back. He was going to massacre significant people, and because of the, the position of the international community, he may have gone back to supporting 
the terrorism that he was known for um, in the 70s, 80s, and uh, 90s. Um, that doesn't mean that we could have done uh, done a much better job in the international community um, of preparing for the the, uh, the next steps. Um, we did offer significant assistance to um, uh, the then the Transitional Council. Um, unfortunately, they were uh, had this uh, stubborn uh, approach that they didn't need any assistance. Now that um, Gaddafi uh, was gone, they could do it themselves. Um, and uh, the U.S. from the U.S. perspective. We didn't push hard enough, but the um, m my uh, argument has been there were six months um, that we could have established a really clear path and a strong path to an international approach to um, uh, uh, supporting uh, Libya's transition. That was the first six months of 2012. We barely, the U.S. barely had a presence on the ground. Whereas we had lots of post-conflict experience um, uh, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and other places, um, we had barely a handful of um, diplomats uh, in uh, in Libya at the time. Same with uh, most of our international <coughs> partners. Right. Um, obviously, isn't that uh, a little unusual though? In that in in 2011, as I understand it, although you know. The Europeans took a lead role in NATO operations in Libya. Uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton sort of laid down the law on, you know, the, the U.S. is not even nominally going to participate or take the lead unless uh, Gaddafi is overthrown. Uh, you know, we, we, we had conditions uh, for, yeah. that was for a, being that involved. Was a and, and, and then, and then we, we, we didn't stay committed right so we were very um, firm on on conditions but then didn't uh uh so I, i'm can't think of the right I'm, metaphor but did, didn't maintain a stake on the ground strong enough to sort of what, override i divisions. i i agree with a critique and i've written that um i think we sh it, it was you know this this concept of a heavy footprint with tens of thousands of military forces or uh, no uh, light footprint um, to, to handle the transition, we had effectively no footprint. I mean, we had, like I said, less than a handful of people working uh, on, the, on the ground in, um, uh, in subsistence roles in those first uh, six or seven months. Um, and once Benghazi happened in... Uh, um, September of 2012, um, because it became the political firestorm that it did, um, that uh, all bets were off for uh, U.S. Uh, leadership on um, on Libya for you know uh, the foreseeable future. And it uh, to come back to today, um, Secretary Pompeo, who went to Berlin was uh, the ultimate critic um, in when he was in Congress of the Benghazi issue. Um, he wrote a, actually a dissenting report from the Republican-led um, investigation, um, and uh, that explains why he hasn't, he hasn't 
participated in any Libyan uh, Libya issues um, since uh, in his tenure as secretary. Um, and I, I I think that if he if he recommits to Libya, uh, as he said, um, uh, and expressed the importance of the issue when he was in Berlin, um, that's a positive thing. Right. Um, we have uh, about another minute. Uh, what, what else would you tell us about the situation in Libya that, that you think it's important that we know? Um, I would I would just say watch the uh, dynamics at the Security Council right mm-hmm. now. Um, if they uh, agree, um, uh, especially if the U.S. and Russia can um, come to agreement on a resolution, um, backing uh, the plan that the Germans laid out, and uh, it's actually 55 points, so it's a long <laughs> declaration, um, uh, but it is comprehensive and, and covers uh, everything from the arms embargo, enforcement, ceasefire, uh, economic issues, political issues. Um, you know, th- that included all the main parties, um, including the Emirates, and included uh, Putin was there, er- Erdogan was there, um, and uh, um, if the Europeans, uh, U.S. and um, uh, the Russians can agree on a Security Council a resolution and um, specifically an enforcement mechanism to a ceasefire, that's a positive step. If you don't get a um, resolution this week or the next week, then uh, you're going to see more uh, drift and, uh, unfortunately, more uh, uh, intensification of the civil war. Right. Okay, we're out of time. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, ben Fishman of the Washington Institute, we'll have you back uh, if something in Libya changes. Happy to do it. This is the Middle East Forum Radio Hour. Until next week. See you then.